This is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind with me, psychologist Professor Richard Wiseman. And me, science journalist Marnie Chesterton. This is the podcast where we delve into the psychology of everyday life and answer your questions about human behaviour. Expect fascinating facts, scintillating science, and this might even improve your life. In this episode, we're taking a break from our usual format and talking to daredevil and escapologist Jonathan Goodwin. And why are we talking to Jonathan today? I've known Jonathan for many, many years. Um, so he started out as a magician a long time ago, which is how we met. And it's then, always the magician connection, isn't it? It's always the magician connection. Must go back, oh, I don't know how many years, 25 years with Jonathan, I would have thought. And um, then he transitioned into doing daredevil and escapology stuff. He's a lovely, lovely, lovely man, incredibly talented and very, very rational and very careful in terms of, of doing dangerous things. So he did lots of those and it's all amazing. Then a few years ago, one of them did unfortunately go catastrophically wrong and now he is a wheelchair user. And so we're going to be chatting to him about the impact that that's had on him. And I think it's an incredible story really of, of courage and of resilience. And we should say you know, that this is his story, his perspective. I think there are psychological lessons in there. And as I say, he's one of my, my favourite people in the world. Great. So we'll be back to our usual format in the next episode. But for now, let's give Jonathan a call. Today I've got a very, very special guest, a dear friend of mine. It's uh, the amazing Jonathan Goodwin. Hello, Jonathan. How are you both? I'm very, very well. How are you, Marnie? Delighted to be here. <laughs> very good. So you were doing magic-y stuff and then at some point decided to transition into daredevil stuff. Do, do you remember the first one that you did? Mm. I got a bed sheet and I put it, I sort of stretched it above me from the four sort of corner posts of the bed. And I got my dad involved because he was cheap. And my dad put a hot iron on the bed sheet and I had to escape. I was bare chested. I was tied to the bed and I had to escape before the iron burned through and hit me in the chest, uh, which I didn't do. Um, <laughs> so that was the first one. Well, but I have to say, if I were to do it, which which I, I never would, but if I were to get a hot iron on my chest, yeah. I would go, you know what? I'm going to call that a day. <laughs> but but you made an incredibly successful career <laughs> out of that. So, what, what happened next? How, how did you progress from hot irons onto doing amazing things? I made a show called The Seven Stupidest Things to Escape From, counting down more and more and more ridiculous things. And it was it's a tiny little show and, and, and I think it only aired maybe twice ever but it's actually one of the things I'm most proud of in my career I have a very silly sense of humour and it was incredibly silly I was tied to a dog at one point I was tied to a shop mobility scooter and, and I went off Bogner Pier we did uh, human wrecking ball and we tied me to the bottom of a crane and swung me at things so you you do that but then you go from there to making these incredible shows where you do... I mean, the last one I saw you, you were doing a zip line over a ravine or something, just holding on with your teeth. Yes. We sort of skip over probably the best part of 15 years of me doing this stuff and learning how it worked. It wasn't really that they got more... I mean, I guess they did get more dangerous, but, but I also learned more. I was staying within my comfort zone. My comfort zone just got bigger and bigger and bigger. 
I was asked to make my own series, and then I also made a Shark Week show called How Not to Become Shark Bait, the five statistically most stupid things to do in shark infested water. And I did them one at a time to see how difficult it is to be bitten by a shark. And you have the honor of talking to probably the only person in the world who's ever been attacked by a shark whilst dressed as a clown. Hold on a second. A clown? Yeah. Does that mean sharks don't like clowns either? I think that's true. We proved that. No, the, the science of it is high contrast colors. It's the same science as a fishing lure. They want to come and see what you are, but they don't have hands, so they use their teeth. And that's, that's what happened. It's an amazing thing. So I was wearing chainmail, which prevents the lacerations that the teeth would give you, but it doesn't prevent any of the pressure. And actually, as I was going underwater, the expert that was with me said, oh, I, I did this with another guy a couple of weeks ago, and he had his arm ripped off in the suit by a blue shark that grabbed it and then rolled. And I didn't have the opportunity to go, hang on a minute, what? Uh, we were literally going. We were literally going un- <laughs> under the water. But so what happens is it bit me on the leg. What was going through your mind? I I don't know. I just am not naturally not very afraid of things, and so I was just fascinated by the process. Is it more than not not afraid? Are you actively drawn to the dangerous things? I don't think so. You know, to, to move into the sort of the, the stuff that I created that I performed, I usually think about what is the worst thing that I would be willing to have happen to me in a worst case scenario and then move backwards from that. When I'm writing something, I don't really put myself in it. I just think about what would look great, what would be an amazing stunt, what's something that people haven't seen before. And then the, there's, a, there's a perfect example of cognitive dissonance that happens when the person that's maybe going to you know, book me to do it says, yeah, we want you to do it. Because I go, yay! Ah, shit. <laughs> you know, both, both at the same moment, because now I know I've got to do it. But I think a lot of it builds into overcoming fear generally because fear is dissipated by knowledge and understanding. You know, the reason why the shark is scary in Jaws is because you don't know where it is for most of the movie. And so the unknown part of it, the part where you don't know where the shark is, that's what makes it scary. The moment you see it, it's a big plastic shark. It's not scary anymore. Uh, And I think that's generally true, that the more you understand a, a thing the less scary it becomes. So I would just train and do a bunch of research. So I would go into all of the things that I did, really armed with the idea that, yeah, I can do this, you know. And what's the trajectory of fear? Because when you're just about to zip line across a ravine, is the fear in the build-up? Is it in the moment of doing it, setting off? Is it when you're halfway across? Is it when you get to the other side? When does fear... If it does kick in at all, when does it kick in? For America's Got Talent, I was 75 feet in the air on a platform and there was another platform 100 feet away and a zip line between the two. And I was tied up, so my hands behind my back. But I also had a tether attached to me, which when I went out on the zip line would stop me in the middle. And so I had to escape in order to release the tether so I could finish the journey. I'm hanging from my teeth and the rope that I'm hanging from is on fire. So I have to escape before the rope band stream. And honestly, truthfully, I was not afraid for a moment of it. But having said that, I had done a lot of previous stunts where I was up high. I did a stunt where I was hanging from a helicopter and another stunt where I was hanging by my fingers from the edge of a building. And then I was, I've never been, I've never been a big fan of heights. I could get over it and push it down, but I, I didn't like it. 
But I think what, what I have a natural inclination to do is lean into things that I don't like and write more of them because, because they become easier. As you do more, you learn more. And then, and I can honestly say, when I did the zip line from my teeth, I didn't even have an elevated heart rate. I was completely calm the whole time I did it. If we can move on then towards the accident, if you're yeah. comfortable talking about that, can you talk us through what, what happened there? There was a there was a stunt performer in the 1970s. His name was Steve Baker, and he would do a, a stunt where he was tied to a car, and he had another stunt driver who was sort of tied to the bonnet of the car, and another stunt driver would drive at him, uh, and his job was to escape and jump out of the way. And that's a really stupid stunt for two reasons, which is that you know you're either going to jump early, in which case it's not that impressive, or you're going to leave it late, in which case it's really dangerous. And so I. Uh, I wanted to come up with a way where I could make it more precise. And so this was my solution. Now, I know, given what happened, that seems like I didn't do a good job. But actually, it worked beautifully. And we just got into some, some issues which we're still dealing with as to exactly why it didn't work. But it, it was not my fault. It was not the stunt's fault. The idea was that I'm hanging upside down in a straitjacket 30 feet in the air from a crane. Now, hanging from the same place as me were two cars that were pulled back and held in position and needlessly laced with explosive. So I had to escape from the jacket and pull a release at my ankles to drop into an airbag before the car swung and collided with me. And that didn't happen. I went to release myself and I didn't drop. And so that was as far as my involvement went in, in the stunt. I knew it had gone wrong. My response was, oh, f And that's literally my last memory is that. It's just going, oh, shit. And then what happened was the car swung, they collided with me, exploded. And then I fell, but by that time I wasn't over the airbag anymore. So I fell 30 feet to the ground. I broke both my legs. I suffered massive third degree burns. I uh, destroyed one of my kidneys. I broke my ribs. I punctured a lung. I broke both my shoulders. And I suffered a complete spinal injury, which means that I'm now a role model pushing myself around instead of, instead of walking around. And then, uh, so I woke up on the ground. I got a free ride in a helicopter to the hospital there. It was in Atlanta, Georgia, that, that the accident happened. And there I stayed for the next five weeks. And, you know, that was the beginning of the second half of my life. Astonishing. Yeah. At what point during the hospital stay do you go, OK, what's next? Immediately. You know, I was told in hospital that I wouldn't walk again. And my and I'm not making this up. My response to that was okay. And I think that comes a lot from the the, the work I'd done and how I'd sort of built myself do, doing the work that I'd done. That I I've always been a stoic and I've always tried to live as much as I can in the moment. And so I process things quite quickly. So I knew there's nothing I can do about it. It is, it is what it is. And so. Any 
idea that I was going to sort of wallow in pity, I just, there's just not in my nature. So it, I was immediately like, what's next? And I was way off base as well, by the way. I was like, in my head, I was sort of planning Christmas. This is in October. Uh, maybe I could go home for Christmas on this, that, and the other. And I was in hospital until the end of February. And, and it's a process, you know. You, you, I had a lot of traumatic injuries that I had to, to overcome. I came back to the UK. I was in an NHS hospital for another month from sort of November onwards into the middle of December. And they were amazing. The best care I got, actually, was in the NHS. Those people were incredible. And then I went into a private rehab. And when you have a spinal injury, you're essentially made an adult baby. And you have to relearn everything and some things in new ways. So you can't go home because you can't look after yourself. There's no way. You have to learn how to look after yourself and to manage the things that you need to manage in, in new ways. And it's a slow process. And they make a very big deal, uh, understandably, about the first time you go home and they have occupational therapists that want to come to your house and make sure that it's, you know, you have everything you need. And Amanda, uh, my fiance, is an actor and she came in to visit me one day and she was very glum. And I was like, what's the matter? And she said, well, I've got this great job and it would star me and it's like a bank heist thing. Uh, and I was like, that's amazing. And she said, yeah, but it starts basically the time you leave hospital and it's in Hungary, so I can't, I can't do it. And I was like, what are you talking about? Let's go to Hungary. So that's what we did. I didn't go home from hospital. We went from hospital to Heathrow and Heathrow to Budapest. And, and so my first seven weeks out of hospital were there. And Budapest is the least accessible city in Europe. So I figured if I could make it there, I could make it anywhere. And that was my new beginning. Yeah. Wow. And how the, the skills that you had as a daredevil, do they map onto your recovery? Yeah. And has that helped you? Yeah, certainly. I basically spent my life doing physical challenges. And so going from somebody who's hanging from their teeth, my greatest challenge was, yeah, just sitting without the, without the support of the back of my chair. When you, I mean, everybody's spinal injury is slightly different. But for me, this was a little bit like trying to balance a pencil on an upright on a, on a snooker ball. You have no control and you feel like you're just going to fall. They call it sitting balance. You can do it very easily because your trunk and your legs just provide that base of support. Whereas because mine isn't connected like that anymore, this is something that I have to actively do and think about. And so it's just different shapes of challenge, but it's all the same stuff in many ways. But you mentioned it's slow, though. I can imagine, you know, if you're someone that's used to working in stunts and you're working in telly, you're used to kind of fast pace. Was the slow recovery frustrating? Incredibly. I mean, not least because I couldn't start. You know, the biggest part of my recovery was... The, the rehab and I couldn't really start until I'd healed from all of the other injuries that I had so it was really very that was a you know it's a, a real exercise in patience but patience is something that you have to learn when you have a spinal injury because everything takes 10 times longer no matter what it is you know just getting to bed getting undressed for bed getting into a car it's not something that you can sort of nip and do quite quickly that, that's not a thing anymore and so actually it's incredibly valuable, you know, from a point of view of teaching you patience. And, and that's kind of, it's always, I mean, I've always been a, a reasonably patient person. I just think that, you know, we don't control the things that happen to us. We just control how we respond to them. And so that's that lesson, which, which I guess I taught myself doing my previous job 
is absolutely resonant in, in my new life. Are you analysing yourself and your reactions to how you're thinking as you're, as you're going through these new experiences, thinking, what am I taking from this? No, I don't think so. It's one of the things that I've discussed with, with Richard is that, you know, a lot of people, because I, think, I, I understand that my response to my accident is not a usual one, you know, the, the idea of, of losing your mobility, I think, would be highly traumatic for a lot of people, and understandably. Um, so I understand that my response is not normal, but I, you know, I, people said, oh, you should teach, or, you know, I, it's hard. I, I mean, I'm getting my head around it now slowly, but, but at the beginning I was like, I don't really know how to teach someone how to be me because this is just how I responded to this situation. And so... Uh, you know, learning in retrospect what those processes are that I've subconsciously learned has been interesting to kind of unpick it, but it's not something that I'm sort of actively processing at the time. This is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind, and this week we're interviewing Jonathan Goodwin. What have you learned about resilience well i mean i think i was pretty resilient i think that the hardest things really for me that i've had to deal with have been really small moments the idea of you know losing your mobility is a very large thing to get your head around and the, and the little touchstones that i have for sadness around that loss are based in in little moments, like I, I, Amanda, after we were in Budapest, she did a play in Chichester, and we went there for another six weeks. And we got a little cottage by the sea, and the beach is more, was my happy place. And Amanda and I had never been to the beach together before, and I couldn't go. You know, I had to sit. It's just the most inaccessible place that you can think of, really. So I just sit and watch her go paddle and, you know, whatnot. And that was hard. And I think, you know, it's also that the people focus a lot on the, the loss of mobility, but actually one of the most affecting things in that way was the idea of the loss of sensation. You know, that, that first time when you go to a beach and you take your shoes and socks off and step onto the sand is amazing, and I'll never experience that again. That's sad. On the flip side of that, I've seen you, I heard you speak about being very mindful and living in the moment mm -hmm. and it, actually being grateful to some extent that you get more time to spend with your daughter and, and so on. That's a hundred percent the attitude. And, and it's interesting because it's, it's, you know, it's literally taking the same information and looking at it in a different way, you know, making, making that choice of how you respond. I can be in bed learn that I've had this terrible accident, that I've had all of these injuries, and think to myself, woe is me, you know, my life's terrible. Or I can think, holy crap, I should have died. I mean, I really should have died. I'm incredibly mm. lucky to be here, you know, and to be able to cuddle my daughter and watch sunsets and all of the things that I probably took for granted a little bit before that. I appreciate little things and moments in life way more than I did before. It's also about 
leaning into it. Like I leaned into the idea of being afraid of, of heights and, 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 and creating more and more of those. It's like leaning into discomfort and having the faith in yourself that it'll be okay uh, is, is, I think, a really good lesson. So the second time I went to the beach, I had found a, a wheelchair that was adapted to go onto the beach and into the water. Oh, cool. And actually, the first, the first time I went into the ocean after my accident, I went scuba diving. You can either sit there and go, God, this is crap. I can't do that anymore. That's rubbish. Or what can I do about it? I can remember at one point you saying, and tell us how people respond to you, that because you were used to telling people what to do as a performer, that was actually quite a helpful skill of saying to people, this is what you need to do. Because people often yes. don't know how to respond. Well, I think, I think that's one of the issues that people with disabilities have generally, is that able-bodied people don't know how to respond interactions can get quite awkward I, I i went with amanda actually when we were in budapest quite early after my my sort of release back into the wild we went to a restaurant and uh, we were meeting some people and the people that we were meeting had chosen a space in the restaurant that was up to two steps and that's like a no you know i'm li- literally like a dalek i can't i can't go upstairs and so i had to be lifted by the wait staff and then lifted back down again by our friends uh, at the end of the night. And it was incredibly awkward. And afterwards I analysed it. I was like, why was that awkward? And I realised it was my fault. That they don't want to do something wrong. They don't want to do something that's going to upset me or offend me or, or hurt me. And so that's why it's sort of tentative and awkward, those inter- interactions. And the correct solution is it is my responsibility to take charge. My responsibility to go, okay, guys, we're going down the stairs. You can grab here and grab here and let's go, or whatever it might be. The moment that you do that, all awkwardness just goes away and it's just a normalised situation. And I think, I think because people with disabilities have a really hard time, it, it feels maybe a little unfair that it, is, that it is our responsibility to do that. But at the same time, the more we do that, the more we take charge the more educated, able-bodied people will be will become, and then it'll be generally less awkward. So it's just something that we have to lean into. There's a podcast that I listen to called Movers and Shakers, mm. uh, which is a bunch of people who've all got Parkinson's, and uh, <laughs> one of them is Jeremy Paxman, okay. who is characteristically grumpy and furious mm. that he can't do stuff that he used to do. Mm. Um, and then also in the group is, is it Simon Mayhew Archer, who's like, Parkinson's is the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Paxman going... Don't be so ridiculous. <laughs> so they sat around to say, it's an awful degenerative disease. And then you've, it's like Mayhew Archer saying, no, 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 I I now do all sorts of stuff that I never did before. So I've had a whole tour on stage and I'm fasc- fascinated to know what your take is between those two very different views of something bad happening to you. I think it's about living in the moment. I would say that right now is the moment that we live, right now, and that's it. It's like the little tip of a spear. So right now, in this moment, you could scratch your cheek, but you can't do that five minutes ago, and you might not be able to do it in five minutes' time. And and so this is the only moment that you have control. Now, that sounds very obvious, but at the same time, how much time do we spend, like Jeremy, thinking about all of the things, the lamenting the past and things that, that we had or, or that we didn't do right, or worrying about the things in the future. 
I think that a lot of those things are a waste of, of good energy. And if you can make the most of the moment that you're in, then actually it's a beautiful place that we live. Yeah, but more than living in the moment, there's that oh, this happened to me and I've turned it into a good thing is what the Mayhew Archer approach is. Yeah. But I'm kind of loath to suggest that to you because it feels really crass in a way to go, and now, you know, you've learned all these amazing lessons. It's like trying to find a silver lining to a terrible accident. But there is one. I should have died. I'm incredibly fortunate. You know, when I was a TV producer, I was in charge of, of development for this company. And they asked me to find, uh, they wanted to make a show about people that had nearly died. And it didn't get made for one reason or another, but I, I did all of the research. And I found this story about this, this uh, skydiver who's a really experienced skydiver. So anyway, so he's doing this jump and he's recording it as well. So he's got a camera with a mic and his parachute fails and then his secondary fails. And so now he knows he's going to die. And he also has a few seconds to say whatever he would say as his little epitaph before he crashes. And so what would you say? You got six seconds. Ten seconds, what are you going to say? Yeah, I'd, I'd say thank you and I love you to quite a few people. Mm -hmm. As many as you could reel off in that time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Richard? I think I'd probably just repeat my oh. PIN number over and over <laughs> again. <laughs> because it is difficult for people, isn't it, afterwards to, to find out those numbers and get access to bank accounts. Wow. Is that, that is, the wrong answer? That is so amazingly practical. That's, that's, I mean, that's the most Richard Wiseman answer to a question I think I've ever heard. So what he, this guy actually said was, he said, I'm dead. Bye. That was, that was his, you know, I mean, which kind of covers it. Um, but then he landed in... A, a massive bush and he broke almost every bone in his body but he survived that bush was literally six feet away from an asphalt parking lot and so you go from being the unluckiest person in the world to the, uh, the absolute luckiest person in the world in a heartbeat and i think that's the nature of it it's like how do you frame it you know where are you going to land and i think that that's that's the key to it is just where, where do I put myself? And I think that the Stoics have all of that advice. It's is fantastic. It's 2,000 years old, but it's brilliant. Of course, if I'd have landed in the bush and been fine, I'd have had to change my pin. Yeah, that's a nightmare. <laughs> um, I know you give amazing... Am <laughs> amazing... Well, I'm just being honest. That's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's also the, that's the first thing you would have thought of after the accident as yeah, well. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. And they'd, be, they'd be taking me to hospital. I'd go, can you just stop off at an ATM? It needs to be one of those roles I can change my pin. <laughs> I mean, I, imagine, I would be the worst person in all of these situations. Um, I know you give amazing talks uh, to all sorts of groups uh, mm. about your experiences and so on. Just to, to finish up, after people have heard those those talks, say this to you and embarrass you, I know you're an incredibly sort of charismatic performer and speaker. I've seen you perform many, many times. You're astonishing. What do you want people to take away? What's the key takeaway message from your experiences, from your point of view? Well, I think that the inhibitor for all of us at any level is fear. And, you know, obviously the, the fears that I dealt with are way more extreme than most people are going to deal with in their lives. But the, the methods of of resolving those things are pretty universal. And I think that 
leaning into those things is a really, really good piece of advice. And then also the knowledge thing. I was talking with, with Amanda about it, that a lot of the times, even basic level things that we experience are rooted, that anxiety response is rooted in the lack of knowledge. You know, when you're dishwasher breaks down for example and you're like oh no this you know this is now going to be and you project all of these terrible things and the expense and this that and the other but if you're a person that knows how a dishwasher works then you go oh well it's just that and we have to change that and it's not scary anymore and so you can take that idea of learning how to hang from your teeth learn as much as you can about about the environment and the world that we live in and then it's not scary anymore it is delightful and wonderful to speak to you. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Pleasure. So that was Jonathan Goodwin. Amazing. Amazing. Amazing, inspiring, because I think his approach to dealing with a catastrophic injury and all of the hard work of recovery is, is quite different to probably what I'd do, I'd, which would be a mixture of self-pity and moping. But he just seems to have taken this approach of, okay, this is where I am. I am still alive. That's a blessing. How do I make the most of this? For me, what it also flagged up is how quickly life can change. You know, we, we take all sorts of things in our lives for granted and actually change can be extremely rapid. So I think being able to look at that change in a positive way, no, no matter what it is, is a really important life skill. If you uh, are less stoical than Jonathan, which I imagine is most of us, is there anything you can take from that? I, I, I suspect none of us really know how we would react to these things until we're in that, that situation. And of course, it's up to everyone how they react, how they look at the things that happen in their own lives and what their experience is uh, with that. Jonathan found his way forward and other people will find theirs i i think what's interesting about him is is incredibly charismatic and a wonderful speaker and a wonderful performer and he's brought that skill set into the domain of resilience and coping and thriving so i personally find it a very inspirational story which is why I think it's so interesting talking to him and, and looking at the way in which he sees the world. It made me want his mindset. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's somebody who is very used to confronting fear and danger and has brought lots of that skill set with him, and that's what we heard. He's a lovely guy and, and a dear friend, and so, yeah, it felt a real privilege. From Podomo and Telltale, this has been Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind. Hosted by Professor Richard Wiseman and Marnie Chesterton. Our producer is Kate White. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudno and Matt White. And for Telltale are Rami Sabar and Jago Lee. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at WisemanPod. Where we'll be regularly asking you for questions for future episodes. You can also email us at WisemanPod at Podomo.com. And if you like this podcast, tell your friends, leave us a review. If you don't like it, tell your friends you did. Why should you be the only ones to suffer? Although it does help others find us. And don't forget to subscribe. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>